Good morning, church family. Today's worship in the Word will be read from Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Both my wife and I will be reading. On the next day, which followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together. Oh, to Pilate. Oh, I'm sorry. Saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive that deceiver said, There are three days I will rise. After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. There are two great deceptions today. Well, thousands, trillions maybe, I don't know but two that I'm referring to today. And we could frame them differently, too. We could frame it instead of deception just in terms of two ways in which people are full of themselves today. One is to say, I am a spiritual person. No, I don't go to church. I'm not particularly religious. Uh, But I'm just a good person, and I'm a spiritual person. The kernel of truth in that, of course, is that you are all made in the image of God after his likeness. The kernel of truth in that is that, of course, whether you acknowledge it or not, you've all been redeemed by God. Uh, That's true, too. The kernel of truth in that is that we were made with a heart for God originally. And while we live in rebellion against that God, there is something in us, most of us anyway, the vast majority of humankind that draws us, on occasion at least, to some sort of goodness, some sort of kindness, some sort of enlightenment, some sort of sense of other. The lie in that, of course, is that this uh, very hard-to-define spiritualness that you possess somehow translates into good business ethics, translates into kindness to people, translates into God-likeness in any kind of significant way. The other and equally obnoxious deception is to be religious. And that's probably harder for most of us to swallow because we're here. The notion somehow that being religious, having a structure with which we approach things, whether it be devotional life or whether it be church attendance or something else, somehow exempts us from the vileness that's present everywhere. Neither of these things are ultimately very helpful. Why do I raise this point? Because you're going to see a contrast And we're going to see something that I hope you can pull together. I I believe that we need to be spiritual people with religious focus and that that religious focus needs to be on Christ and that that spiritual nature needs to be fed and led by the Holy Spirit of God. And that that combination will lead us into the kind of truth that's transformational. It's incarnational first and redemptive secondly, and resurrection and promise-oriented finally.
at the end of the day. If you turn into Isaiah 57, which is the first text that was read, starting at verse 15, I'm going to go through that with you to just create a few contrasts and help us understand a little better what our gospel text says today. If you read the major heading above verse 14, at least in the New International Version, and I want to uh, celebrate with all of you, we will be getting new pew Bibles very soon, and I will make a more concerted effort to note page numbers and so forth. It will be the new uh, today's New International Version. I've ordered a new study Bible in that for myself as well, so we all get to endure the change. It should be wonderful. Verse 14, it says, And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people, for this is what the high and lofty one says. Now, that would be a kind of uh, mockery for anyone other than God, wouldn't it? He is truly the high and lofty one. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. Quote, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly and to receive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. Now, I am not an expert in Isaiah or in Hebrew poetry, but I would be the first to say that it appears to me that God is speaking of two realities in verse 15. I live in a high and holy place, he says, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit for the purpose of reviving the spirit of the lowly and for the purpose of reviving the heart of the contrite. So it sounds like there's person and utility both there to me. That person would be, of course, the son of man who is lowly and meek. Isn't that what we read of Jesus? Am I missing something? Have we, have we heard that uh, spoken of regarding Jesus? Yes, he is meek and lowly of heart. So perhaps this is referring to the Christ with God. And then the purpose, of course, of all of this is that there would be a revival or a rescue of the heart of the contrite who stand accused. Verse 17, I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, and yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways, and doesn't that describe us all? And then God says, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him the comforter, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Now this word peace is dependent on or tantamount to rest. When you are not at war, you are at a state of peace. Your soldiers aren't deployed, they are at best at attention and at, at the very least at rest. 
When you are not angry with a neighbor and ruminating over the injustice of the cause between the two of you, you are at peace, which is another way of saying your mind is at rest. When you haven't taken home all of the cares of work, you can enter the rest of the sanctuary of your home as you eat a meal and share time with family. It's these burdens that we carry with us. It's these things we we preoccupy ourselves with. And God says he's been angry. But he will comfort and restore. He will create praise for those who mourn. Sounds like Jesus' message in the Beatitudes as well. And he says, peace, peace. My message is one of peace. And here's the contrast. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I went to boarding school at Monterey Bay Academy, and I can tell you after a storm, there was lots of junk on the beach. Driftwood, lots of seaweed, occasionally uh, dead fish, dead birds, dead sea mammals, garbage, lots of plastic bottles and that sort of thing, and sometimes mud, mud that had been washed down into the water from the cliffs or mud that had been churned up from the bottom. The beach was often a mess after a great storm. And this is the description of the wicked. There's no clarity. There's no calm. There's, there is nothing but this junk that gets tossed up onto the shore. No rest as opposed to peace. We want to be the people of God's rest. And we're In that day, aren't we? Sabbath is our day of peace, our day of rest. We're kind of at an interesting place because, as I've said about Easter before, it's, it's, we have a long-standing tradition of sort of taking the resurrection as a fact from 2,000 years ago and celebrating it in one day on which we find our rest. And today we have lilies that I hope many of you will take home. Thank you for donating them. And if you'll be here tomorrow, if you can leave them for tomorrow, all the better. But then there's also the way a way to dramatically enter uh, and reflectively enter this kind of season. And the drama is acted out in the colors that you see. Purple for Lenten season, the coming of the royal king. And it's acted out as we have our rough-hewn cross. If you were at Maundy Thursday service, you saw our communion service Thursday night, you saw the crown of thorns. These little visible reminders, these pieces of, these props, if you will, in this play in which we're reenacting, this cosmically important play that cues us to the rhythm of what was happening 2,000 years ago and reminds us of all that Jesus endured, not in a moment, but over time. And so we've been exploring through the seven last words of Christ, 
in the last few sermons, and in this last week, the rhythms of this season of rest and redemption. The black on the cross, and my all black today, although I wear this sometimes besides uh, this day, is just our culture's understanding of mourning. Jesus sleeps. He doesn't really, obviously, he was resurrected 2,000 years ago. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But as we reenact, as we think about the season, Sabbath day, he rests. And he was one who invited us to enter the rest of which he speaks, the peace of which he speaks in Isaiah. Now, if we turn to our gospel lesson, you see a wonderful juxtaposition of what I was talking about earlier with religious and spiritual and some of the problems of having one and not the other. Matthew 27. But before you get there, let me see if I want to do it before or after, just a moment. I want to do it before. Let's go to John 19, John John 18, actually. I'm sorry about that. John 18, please. Pastor Craw preached on this passage last evening at our Good Friday service. One of the things that he pointed out, one of the things that... Uh, struck me was what was said in verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So when Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Excuse me. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves then and judge him by your own law. And they replied, but we have no right to execute anyone. The Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Now, the passage here is remarkable in that if you pay attention to the timing, and I'm not usually prone to do so, we find that they are interested in ceremonial cleanness in order to be able to eat the Passover, and yet it is early morning. Passover is gone, or at least they're well into it. As you all know, the Passover supper is a Seder that takes place Thursday evening. These men had been so busy through the night, plotting and scheming and planning and finding a way to kill the Christ, that they hadn't yet been home to eat the Passover supper. And they were plotting to kill the Passover Lamb of God. 
undoubtedly religious people. They had gotten after Jesus many times for his disciples not washing their hands properly or harvesting grain on the Sabbath, not properly keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus had said it right. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And now these religious ones, high religious ones, were about to kill the Passover lamb of God. And in doing so, would not so much as enter the palace of a half-Gentile king. Interesting, isn't it? And it's past. It's now early morning. These plotters and schemers and planners are not done yet. Turn now to Matthew. Matthew 27. Here they are at Pilate's house in the early morning. And it says in verse 62 of Matthew 27, the next day, the one after the preparation day, what day would that be? What day is the preparation day? Let me ask that. Friday. So what would the day after the preparation day be? Sabbath. The chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Presumably they were able to eat their Passover feast while Jesus was being crucified. Sir, they said, we remembered that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. But the wicked are like the sea churning up mud and debris. They have not entered the Sabbath rest of God. In fact, it is Sabbath and they are still plotting and scheming and planning an end to the Christ. We as God's people need to be a spirit-filled people in pursuit of a truth we understand not only externally but internally that exercises itself not only in acts of religious devotion, but in the ethics of our daily lives. That is not an easy task. But you, people of God, are neither just religious or are you just spiritual. If you were just spiritual, you wouldn't be here, probably. And if you were just religious, you would find yourself in the camp of the Pharisees. For they missed the Sabbath rest of God. They missed it. 
so busy trying to shut him down, so busy trying to cap the energy with which he lived and taught, so busy trying to secure a doctrinal conviction that the, well, there were those who didn't believe in the resurrection after all. So busy trying to secure again the power that had been theirs. So busy reestablishing the status quo. So busy missing the one who came to save them. The invitation of Christ to each of us this day, above all days, even other Sabbaths, is that we enter his rest. Because Jesus did it. He bore the indignity of incarnation and the mystery of all of that as well. We don't know how, but he grew in favor with God and men. Somehow he divined and discerned his calling and his purpose. He acted cautiously at first, but didn't hesitate to heal or to free. He assembled a group of people that had almost no prospect of amounting to anything, much like most of us. And he taught them for three years, and as they slept while he prayed in Gethsemane, it wasn't at all obvious that he had succeeded. He upset the status quo to the point that they sought his death, those in charge, and was enough of a presence to raise Roman awareness and to raise them to the place of being co-conspirators as he was executed. And this week, the holiest of weeks in the Christian calendar, we remember his sufferings and his death, not just for our personal sins, but for the sin of the world, not just for those things we've done wrong, but for the rebellion that drives our lives. And he sleeps. He has entered a Sabbath rest awaiting resurrection on this day 2,000-some years ago or close to it. And tomorrow we'll gather at 10.15 and celebrate that in joyous tones, and I'll be wearing white, not black. And our cross will be draped in white, not black. And the Easter lilies will have sprung forth in bloom because life has come from death. And it is that life that comes from death that we celebrate today in Sabbath rest. It is that life that comes from attention to the world of the religious, but not without a mind for the spirit. 
an attention to things that are other, the spiritual, but not with a disregard for the history and practices that have brought us to this place. And the invitation of Jesus to you today is to be among the contrite of heart whom he comforts and to whom he grants absolution and peace and to whom he says, come, enter my rest. For as of yesterday, you will create within us a balance for we would not be like the Pharisees who in their zeal for their religion missed the Lamb of God. Nor would we be so other-occupied that we have no interest in what has come to pass and what is promised yet ahead. For we would be your people a people who have entered your Sabbath rest. And so bless us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name.